Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, in the news of public speaking milestones, Ignite Seattle recently presented its 30th event. Haven't heard of it? What started here in Seattle is now a globe-crossing phenomenon. The organizers give us a chance to talk about something that inspires us for five minutes on a stage in front of hundreds of strangers. Their motto, enlighten us, but make it quick. Ignite Seattle 30 featured talks on bees and the gig economy, nanotech and mentorship, a shout-out from your Muslim neighbor, a story about engineering foster parenthood, and much more. Sit back and enjoy a wealth of inspiration from your friends and neighbors. Ignite Seattle took place on May 26th at Town Hall Seattle. Here, MC Scott Birkin kicks it off. Please note, this recording contains some language of an adult nature. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to spend five minutes giving you the first Ignite talk that explains how Ignite works, sets this tone for you, and then we will get started on what will be a wonderful and fantastic evening. So, ready? Excellent. This is hard. Public speaking is hard. This is like level two. One thing I want you to know, though, is this event, Ignite Seattle, is the largest open submission public speaking event in the Northwest. Anybody can submit a talk, and we pick them based on how interesting and challenging and cool they are. Now, one responsibility that gives you in the audience, this is really hard. I need you to give your best energy. Be glad you're sitting there and not up on stage. So give me like, go, go Ignite Speakers. Fantastic. You guys are well on your way. If people get confused or lost, cheer them on. They seem like, you can do it. Just help them out. If they ask you to do something, which some will and some won't, do whatever they say. You get more drink tickets that way. And nothing they ask you to do will be that terrible. So we also, I want to let you know, we're a volunteer organization. All of us, me and all the other organizers, we're volunteers. We don't get paid to do this. We need your help to promote the event. So if you're having fun, or if you're having fun so far, any opportunity you get, maybe one talk is a little boring for you, tweet about it, put it on Facebook, make a blog post, spread the love about how interesting and fun and challenging this event was for you. And challenging, I mean that in a good way. For any of your friends that chickened out, they said they're going to come, they're like, oh, Seattle freeze, I'm not going to show up. That last slide, this event will be live streamed to the world. You can send that link to them or go to IgniteSeattle.com. That link is available up there. The next Ignite event is in the fall, date TBD. TBD is probably October to line up with what we call Global Ignite. And all the Ignite cities in the world do it in the same week. We'll have more information about that soon. If you are intrigued, you're watching the format, you're like, wow, these speakers suck, the MC is a jerk, I could do a better job. Submissions are open now. So you can go to our website and submit a talk, and we give you advice about how to submit a talk and how to do a good job. We passionately believe that everybody has five minutes worth of a story, a learning lesson, an expertise that you want to share, you wish more people knew about, you can share on stage. You don't need to be famous You don't need to be an expert. We will coach you on the format. You'll get speaker coaching from me and some of the other organizers about how to do a great job. We we know the speakers are the stars, and this is often one of the best public speaking experiences that our speakers ever have in their lives. So, in terms of the format, after I am done with this opening Ignite talk, there'll be eight speakers, about five minutes long. I'll take about 45, 50 minutes in total. Break. More booze, more biology. Go to the bathroom. Do whatever you want. Go to any bathroom that you think is appropriate for you. It's all fine. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
I should have practiced. I didn't think that would be funny. Okay. I am the most visible of the organizers. There are many of us on that slide you just missed. If you see someone with an Ignite badge, thank them. A lot of work goes into the show you're going to see tonight. Techstars is one of our sponsors, famous for Startup Weekend. They do many other things for the startup and creative community here in Seattle, so we're appreciative of them. All of the video, all of our talks are put online, usually within a few days. That's because of Bootstrapper Studios. If you have any film or video production needs, we recommend you check them out. They've done a great job for us. And I believe that is my last slide. So now you can give me a round of applause for the first Ignite of the evening. Very good. Okay. Okay. So now I have to pull out my handy list. I get to have notes because I, I, I'm the MC here. So I could do an Ignite talk about who your speakers are, but that would take way too much time. So our first talk, the honorable first slot, Nicolette Newman is going to talk about fantastic bees and where to find them. Please welcome Nicolette to the stage. All right, so thank you all for coming. My name is Nicolette, and I'm going to talk to you about fantastic bees and where to find them. Uh, Before I start talking about bees, I do want to clear up one misconception about bees. They are not terrifying and scary. They're, uh, They're not death bees, as some would like to call them. They won't go out of their way to sting you. All they want to do is forage and find nectar and pollen, and they will stay away from you if you stay away from them. Um, I actually find them really adorable, kind of cute. Um, so you might, you might think differently, but... Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> now, bees, when I say the word bees, most of you are probably thinking of honeybees, which is completely understandable. They're the most well-known, most popular kind of bee that you'll see around, and that's because we eat the honey that they produce, um, and they're also really important for agriculture. Uh, they pollinate in some way or another about 30% of the food that we eat. So honeybees are transported all over the country uh, to pollinate kind of one crop after another. However, honeybees are not native to the United States. Uh, They are pollinators of majority, uh, or they pollinate a lot of these agricultural crops, but they were not originally here. There were native pollinators that were doing that job long before they arrived. Um, Honeybees were introduced to the United States by Europeans in about the 1600s when they arrived uh, on the continent. So these native bees... Uh, they are undergoing some of the similar problems to what honeybees are, these declines. Um, We've seen a few issues with honeybees in our local area, especially um, a few. uh, Last year was when that giant semi-truck full of bees tipped over, so there's a lot of issues going on that we hear about with bees. Um, I don't really want to dwell on those issues, but I do want to introduce you to some kinds of native bees that we have in this area, in the northwest. Um, There's some pretty good puns that we got out of this bee spill as well. Um, So a lot of these native bees that we have in the Northwest are doing this job of pollination and we don't really see it. So the first kind of native bee that you'll probably recognize are bumblebees. Uh, I think bumblebees are really awesome. They are in a, they they form a colony similar to what honeybees do, a lot smaller. Uh, The difference is though that bumblebees will send off queens at the end of the summer to go eat and forage on nectar, and those queens actually hibernate over the winter. They go into something called diapause, where their their body metabolism slows down, and then they come out again in the spring, lay a bunch of eggs, and establish new colonies. Um, Bumblebees are also really awesome because they perform a special service called buzz pollination. (laughs) 
Uh, buzz pollination is really unique. What the bee does will grab onto the anther of the flower, which is the part that holds the pollen, and vibrate really, really quickly at a really high frequency to knock the pollen loose. Uh, so it's almost like a tuning fork. If you were to hit a tuning fork and watch how quickly it vibrates, that's how quickly a bumblebee will vibrate its muscles to do this buzz pollination. Um, another kind of native bee that we have in the area that's really important to us, um, particularly in Washington for our economy, are uh, mason bees. And that's because apples are very important in Washington. Um, I love apples. I love eating them. I'm sure a lot of you do too. And for our economy, especially over uh, around Wenatchee area, that's a hugely important crop. And apples are pollinated by blue orchard bee, which is a kind of mason bee. Um, you can see they look really different from any other kind of bee that you would normally imagine. And they're also solitary. They don't form colonies or hives like honeybees and bumblebees do. They forage on their own and lay their own eggs and raise their own larvae individually. Um, another kind of native bee, this large family, are the helictidae, or the sweat bees. Um, and this is an example of a sweat bee, this green metallic bee, really pretty, another solitary bee. And the sweat bee family gets their name because they actually are attracted to the taste of human sweat. So if they land on you, they will treat you kind of like a salt lick. Um, they're so small that you can't feel it. It's not like a giant bumblebee or honeybee landing on you. They're very, very tiny. Um, and so... It's, a, it's not really intimidating, but it's kind of fun. They like to come and lick uh, on your skin. So a lot of the questions that come to me when I'm talking ab about bees with people are, what can we do to help bees? Because we all see how there are all these problems that bees are dealing with. And so if you're a gardener, then you're probably already doing a lot to help bees just by planting flowers, providing nectar and pollen. Um, the... Number one rule, I'd say, is uh, to plant a variety of colors. So different bees have different preferences of flowers. If you were eating the same food every day, you'd get really bored of it. Same with bees. So planting a variety of colored flowers ensures that you have a variety of food sources for them. Also think about the flower shape. You have really, really tiny solitary bees. You have pretty big bumblebees. Certain bee sizes can't fit into really tiny tubular flowers. So also having a variety of flower shapes is a really helpful trick. Uh, so if you're interested in helping out bees and want to know more information, I would recommend the Xerxes Society. They have a ton of resources. Um, you're also free to contact me, and you can come see me in the intermission as well if you have any more questions. Thank you so much, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Good job. So Nicolette has provided you all with a kit underneath your seat. Just reach under and tap up, and a swarm of sweat bees will be released. <laughs> up to you, though. Up to you. Next up is How to Gig Economy by Sarah Squire. Please give her a round of applause. Hi, my name is Sarah Squire, as Scott said. I'm the CEO and janitor of a company I started last year called Engage Identity. It's called Engage Identity because I have an unhealthy obsession with Captain Picard. The best captain. I do consulting, training, and software development on identity-based internet protocols like uh, OAuth. And I'm here tonight to tell you how to succeed at being your own boss. So my first piece of advice is to drink with nerds. That's how I got my first client. I was working at the University of Washington in the IT department in a cubicle. And they sent me to a bunch of conferences where I talked to people about projects they're hacking on and problems they're having right now. And I found ways that I could help them out. So ultimately, getting clients is about making friends with people who need help. So once I made those friends, I started my own company, and I started moonlighting. That was just over a year ago. By December, I was working for myself about 20 hours a week on top of my full-time job. 
and I was getting burned out. So I went to my biggest client, and I asked them to bump up my hours. And they said, yes, they would love to. And so I quit my job. <laughs> it was terrifying. But looking back, I realized that my fear was baseless. So I think we all agree that when you invest money, you don't put it all in one place. You diversify your assets. But we have this conception that diversifying your labor is somehow riskier than working a full-time job. So raise your hand if you know someone who's been laid off from a full-time job. Yeah, that is terrifying. So full-time jobs are security theater. You have a consistent income stream, but your income streams are less diverse. Any one of my clients can drop me, and I'll still be okay. So I got over that logical objection to this plan as a possibly very bad life decision. And I still had this feeling that, oh my god, I don't know what I'm doing. My clients are going to leave. I'm going to lose my apartment. It rains a lot in Seattle, and I will be wet and cold. <laughs> and I realized, you know what? Not knowing what I'm doing is a good thing. Smart people like the ones in this room love jumping into the deep end of the pool and learning how to swim. We get bored when we know what we're doing. So I stopped that cycle by starting it. I still think to myself, oh god, I don't know what I'm doing. But now I think, and that's exactly how I want it to be. So I have a slate full of amazing clients. I'm doing the work that I love, but the only place I can work is my apartment. Who knows where this is going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am not the kind of person who can work from home. I would go feral and stop speaking English. It's not pretty. I need to be around people who can smell me. And there's no way yet to add smell to a git commit message. I need a schedule. I need a way to separate work life from home life. So I joined a co-working space. This is Coterie Work Lounge on 4th and Union. Yes, it has an actual lounge in it. That's my friend Jessie at the end of the bar with the pink hair. She's a Python developer. This is Armin, our bartender. So I can still drink with nerds, but now I do it at work. I love this place. I love coming here every day. I love bouncing ideas off of people and making new friends. And it's not that expensive, which brings me to my next piece of advice. Don't be afraid to talk about money. You have to ask for what you're worth and be willing to walk away from clients who won't give it to you. Don't be shy <laughs> about asking people who do what you do how much they charge. Don't be afraid to ask your clients what their budget is and work out a way to get their project done and your rent paid. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that actually making enough money to pay rent in Seattle is no mean feat. Which brings me to the topic of failure. So I made some bad contract decisions when I was first starting out. I made the mistake on one project of saying, yeah, I can build you an API, no problem, flat rate. But what I didn't realize was that when I said build, I meant, it's outputting the right things. And when they said build, they meant, we can call you 10 times a day and change the spec. <laughs> I had to fire that client when we got to the point where they called me and they said, we need you to put a logo on the back-end API that you built. <laughs> you can't, there's, it's a back-end, there's no way, you can't do that. <laughs> My last piece of advice is, don't apologize for needing help. Don't say sorry, say thank you. Don't say, oh, I'm really sorry, but I need this report from you tomorrow. Say. I need this report from you tomorrow. Thank you so much for helping me. Don't say sorry, say thank you. Thank you for being a wonderful audience. Good job.
Okay. How's it going so far? Good? Still awake? The people in that corner left. They were so attracted to your energy in the middle of the audience, they have moved. Maybe they took off. Are they still here? Hey, you're up front. Did you get drink tickets? I'm working on that. I'll work on that. Okay. Next up, different direction for you. Tiny particles can change the world. Charlie Corridor, please give him a round of applause. Okay, so I'm one of the nerds that she was referring to. So my name is Charlie Corridor, and I'm an atomic hacker. And I'm so excited to be here with you and share a topic that is really dear to me, how tiny particles can actually change the world, or nanotechnology. Many of us think about nanotechnology, about this mythical creature that is going to come and destroy us within the next 20 years. But let me tell you, that is not true. In fact, that's only what media has been feeding us during the past 20 years. So let me tell you that actually nanotechnology is everywhere. In fact, there are over 1,800 commercial products right now that you can purchase in the market, and they contain, have been made, have been exposed, or actually have been introduced to nanotechnology. So today, if you had a coffee with 2% milk, let me tell you, you consume titanium dioxide nanoparticles. Yes, you did. So we scientists, physicists, and engineers are actually using nanotechnology to make this product stronger, faster, better for you, and more affordable. And you might ask, what is actually nanotechnology? Well, nanotechnology is the science and where we physicists and engineers actually employ and modify matter at the atomic scale. Really exciting stuff. And within the atomic scale and this nanotechnology, we use this uh, unit called nanoscale. And a nanoscale or a nanometer is actually, to give you a frame of reference, if you have a meter long of a metallic rod and you divide it by a billion times, that tiny piece that you're actually collecting, that's one nanometer. And to give you more information about a more reference, our DNA has a diameter of 2.9 nanometers. Our red blood cells that are running in our blood right now actually has a diameter of somewhere around seven to 8,000 nanometers. That is really exciting stuff that I'm working on. And why nanotechnology? Well, because all the physics and chemistry that we learn in the macro world, the world that we live, doesn't apply to the nanoscale, right? There are unique properties that we scientists are employing to solve one of the global challenges, which is energy, food, uh, climate change, the economy, healthcare, and environment. And tonight, I'm gonna to talk about two problems that I'm working on with nanotechnology to solve them. So remember that I said that there are over 1,800 commercial products in the market that they contain nanotechnology or contain nanoparticles. Well, let me ask you, what happens when these products go to the landfills? Well, highly percentage of these nanoparticles are gonna leach out of these products they're going to go to the water treatment plants. Then, because they're so small, the water treatment plants, they're not be able to filtrate them, so they're going to go back to our rivers. And we scientists are employing a large amount of our efforts using these complicated tools that no even Tony Stark can actually use to understand what is the environmental impact of nanotechnology to the environment. This is a really interesting question, but I took a different approach as a scientist. I developed a simple 
sensitive and affordable technology to detect nanoparticles and environmental matrices, everything from the ocean, from the lakes, from the rivers, from the soil. So this technology is so simple, they use the catalytic activities of nanoparticles. That was the first problem that I tried to solve with nanotechnology. The second one is healthcare. One of the biggest problems that we have is detecting viruses and pathogens within the single visit that you go to the doctor. So let me propose to you a problem. You're, you're in pain, you're, you're suffering because you wanna, uh, you have this illness that you don't know what it is. Well, the doctor actually take the sample that he took from you, they sent it to a centralized lab, right? The centralized lab will take somewhere around 72 to 48 hours to get back to the doctor. The doctor trying, then they're trying to get back to you. This is a big hurdle for them. So I actually use the simple approach to solve this problem. So I use the technology from lateral flow or the pregnancy test with the battery and the, with assistance of nanotechnology to make this sensitive, fast, and affordable technology that is able to detect any pathogen and any virus with a single visit. This is really exciting, right? Because actually I can help the world with nanotechnology. And now let me tell you how I do it. Actually, I'm using gold nanoparticles. As you can see, gold is no gold, it's red right now. And I'm making these spheres and I functionalize them or I code them with a polymer or a, or a protein that is specific to the virus or pathogen that we're trying to detect, right? And because we're doing that, we increase the sensitivity by 100 times. And this is only one or two of the examples that I've been working on nanotechnology. If you guys want to know more about nanotechnology, you're excited about the new frontier about nanotechnology, feel free to reach out to me. I'm really excited. And thank you for being a great audience. And have a fantastic Ignite talk today. Thank you. Okay, we are going to go now from nanotechnology all the way to social media. We can do it. I trust you guys can, you guys can do it, right? You with me? Okay. Next talk up, how to mentor or be mentored using Twitter lists. Welcome Emily, Emily Carey into the stage, please. Thank you. I am an introvert, which means networking in a room full of strangers is not my strength. But I'm also a marketer, and I love to learn and grow. Relationships are a critical part of my job, and they feed my soul. So how was I going to meet the right people? Enter Twitter. How many of you love Twitter? <laughs> Me too. Well, I'm going to show you how to use Twitter to handpick dozens of mentors. You see, Twitter lists are the bomb.com. They help you, Twitter, they help you uh, filter through an overwhelming feed of random junk and turn it into a highly targeted feed of pure gold. So get out your phones. We're going to create your first list. So you go to your profile page, tap that gear button, and then hit view lists. These are some of my lists. So stuff like people I want to meet, team attentive, friends, ballers. Hit the plus button, and you can create your list. So now you're going to name your list. You're going to set it to public or private. I recommend starting with your ballers list, which is people a few steps ahead of you in their career, people you admire, someone like Beyonce. <laughs> so go to the Queen Bay's page, tap the gear button, and hit add to list. 
Now we're going to tap to add her to our ballers list. When you open your ballers list, the queen will be there waiting for you. So the beauty of Twitter list is that you can find and add the exact people that you want to learn from. So you get to handpick the network of your choice. You can see that this has an exponential effect because as you follow people, you follow your ballers, you see who they follow, and you can unlock this beautiful network. I, oh, thank you. <laughs> so the next thing you can do is you can, these, these mentors will help you, they'll help you filter through information. So if you want to be a CMO, follow CMOs, see who they like to follow, see what they like to read, and accelerate your learning. You can see this book from Danielle. Or you can go, uh, if you have a question, you can ask the list. You can say, you, or you can start a conversation with someone on it. And Ashish, he, he gave me this great pro tip, and then when I had a question about it, he responded within minutes. It's really powerful. There's tons of opportunities with Twitter lists. You can find, get a free pass to a speaking, uh, to a conference, or find out about a speaking gig. And I found out about the coaching fellowship thanks to a tweet from Adam Grant. It's my demographic. Then with all these insights, you can apply that as, them as conversation starters when you meet these people in person. Example, Donna Sarkar. I had a huge Twitter crush on her. She is a HoloLens engineer, she's a fashion designer, and she's an author. She wrote a really interesting piece about her perspective on failure that I could really relate to. So I tweeted at her, and she wrote me back. She asked me to go for a drink. I was pumped! But then I had a challenge. I had to meet her. Okay, so I went to my playbook. Step one, ask, check. I made the ask. I made it personal, I made it specific. Step two, come prepared. You better believe I was all up in her Twitter feed, finding out about her, finding out conversations we could have, and topics to discuss. Step three, ask again. So I went, a 30-minute uh, drink turned into three hours of conversation. We had all sorts of stuff in common. So I asked her for advice on my passion project. I asked her to introduce me to more women in tech. Four is thank, always thank. Five, follow up. Donna gave me great advice. So frequently I'll send her check-ins of how I'm doing so she can be part of my journey. Six, repeat. I've met lots of awesome people on Twitter. I try to meet someone new every week. And seven is return the favor. Who can you mentor? Who can you give back to? It's really a beautiful cycle. So now, it's your turn. Time to create your ballers list and add people who will make you better. Awesome people will help you discover more awesome people. And where not everyone is gonna respond, Often people do, and it's really magical. Virtual Twitter relationships can turn into friends, they can turn into mentors, and they can turn into door openers. So if you need a place to start, check out my Seattle Ballers list, and then I, would, I can't wait, I'm so excited to see you on Twitter and meet you in person. Good job. That was cool. So I just wanted to 
mention something I, I kind of overlooked in the opening Ignite talk, which is we believe in juxtaposition. We believe that audiences like you are really smart and that you want to be challenged. And we switch between topics and tones and some things are serious, some things are jokey, some things are professional, some things are personal. That's part of the energy we like to cultivate at an event like this. And we hope you appreciate it. If you feel a little bit lost, we know that tonight and tomorrow you'll think about what you saw tonight. You made connections, some of which we anticipated, some of which we didn't, serendipitous. It's all good and part of the fun of a challenging intellectual, social, public speaking experience that we try to provide for you. So with that in mind, next up is a talk with a different flavor. The talk is titled, I Am Your Muslim Neighbor. Please welcome... Wow. All right. You're clearly in the right neighborhood. Uh, please welcome uh, Amanda Saab to the stage. I have to be completely honest. This is a little bit more nerve-wracking than cooking with Gordon Ramsay, but we'll get to that a little bit later. My name is Amanda Saab. I'm 27 years old, and I'm a social worker. I have two younger sisters, Dina and Mona. Mona is here tonight. Hey. So I am your Muslim neighbor, and when you think of Muslims, you might think of a stereotypical desert-dwelling, bearded, camel-riding Arab man. That's just one of the things the media like to throw out there. I'm here to say that Muslims are coming from all across the globe, representing every ethnicity and every race. American Muslims have no majority race, according to the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. I'm going to be focusing on American Muslim women who have inspired me and touching a little bit about my own story. American Muslim women are making contributions every single day, whether they be doctors caring for the sick or, I'm sorry, journalists telling captivating stories, or Ibtihaj Muhammad, who will be representing Team USA in Rio de Janeiro in the Summer Olympic Games. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. We're making history every single day, and we are living in, your, in our neighborhoods. We live next door to you. So a Gallup poll of 2009 on American Muslims found that American Muslim women were the second highest educated group of religious women in the United States, and were just as likely as American Muslim men to have a college degree or higher. This is my family. So when talking about American Muslims, I'd like to touch on the hijab. My mother and I have decided to wear the hijab, while my sisters have decided not to. It's really important that we address the issue of hijab because many feel that it is oppressive. As a teenager, I questioned everything my parents said, like most teenagers do. I questioned their authority and even my faith. I set out to find the truth for myself. I read and read and read some more and found that Islam not only welcomed questions, but encouraged it. The hijab is my feminist statement, and I made the decision to wear it when I was 16 years old. It is part of my identity and my way of telling the world and myself that my faith and devotion to God are above, are above societal standards of beauty. Now, inspired by my faith, I decided to become a social worker. The Prophet Muhammad said to care for the poor and needy, and that's one of the pillars of Islam. And I wanted to ensure that I was able to do that every single day in my career. Fast forward, my husband Hussein and I moved to the beautiful Pacific Northwest, had to do a little adjusting to the 363 days of rain, <laughs> began eating granola, taking public transportation, and, <laughs> and embraced this ice-cold Seattle freeze. Due to the challenges of my career, I turned to food writing to process all the traumas of my day. That led me to compete on MasterChef 
because you know, cooking for Gordon Ramsay on national television is always a good idea. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I earned a Master Chef apron and, one is, and was one of the first American Muslim women wearing hijab to do so. And that got a lot of press. That also got a lot of hate comments. I chose to not ignore them, like some of them said, just block. I rather chose to challenge their hate and understand why and where it was coming from. No. Islamophobia is a really serious issue and has led to the deaths of three beautiful, intelligent, young Muslim Americans in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It is devastating to know that people like me can be murdered because of their faith. I decided to take that ignorance and hate and turn it into something positive. So I began dinner with your Muslim neighbor. My husband and I opened our home to our colleagues, neighbors, and complete strangers to talk about Islam in a safe, judge-free environment. No silly questions, no judgments, free for everyone. And of course, I was cooking, so delicious food. <laughs> I believe that food can be the bridge to understanding and can really bring people together. We can use food to talk about things. It helps set the tone. I wish we kind of had more food here tonight because I'd probably be a little bit less nervous. Now here's our point. What can you do? Well, reach out. Break bread with your neighbors. Say hello. Extend a helping hand. Together, we can be the change we want to see in the world, and we can be the ideal neighborhood that we wish to see and all strive for every single day. So we, I, and all of these wonderful people are your Muslim neighbors. So when you see us, give us a friendly hello, a smile, join us for dinner. You're welcome at our place. And I hope to see you guys sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're like one-third of the way through your, your night, so you should be ready. Brace yourself for even more awesomeness, including our next talk. So next up, different direction again. We'll talk a little bit about parenting, a special kind of parenting. You're going to hear an engineer's guide to foster parenting by Kevin Moore. Please welcome Kevin to the stage. I'm not an introvert. I'm memeing. Hi. Um, engineers live in a world of acronyms and memes. If you don't know what this means, you don't waste enough time on the internet. <laughs> or you should watch Office Space again. It's a really good movie. Me. Me and my wonderful wife, we are dinks. Dual income, no kids. Um, we had this wonderful experience um, in Europe. My wife did a volunteer um, thing, I should talk better about it, at, uh, in Romania at, a, at an orphanage. And we decided that there's so many kids in the world that need love. Um, and we thought about growing our family via adoption. And so obviously we have stereotypes about how adoption works. And when you talk about adoption, this is how most people think about it, right? Um, but there's another option, which is foster to adopt. And this is what my wife and I learned about and got into. There's 400,000 children in the United States right now in foster care. And 100,000 of them are looking for a permanent home, what we call a forever home. Um, and my wife and I realized with 10,000 kids in the state of Washington, this is something we wanted to help with. So we dug in. We uh, took many hours of classes. We became CPR and uh, what is the other one? 
Yeah, yeah, that, that thing, you know. I know how the AED thing works with the shocking, and it's really scary and cool. And we got a placement in January. So before I start, I need to do a little CYA, which is um, I've only been doing this for four months, and I'm brand new to it. I know many of you probably have many kids doing it for many years. This is my experience. I am not claiming to be an expert, so cut me a little slack. Um, second of all, um, privacy is a big part of this, so I can't show you any pictures of our cute little one. Um, he is way more cute than this puppy. I just wanted to give a basis for kind of comparison. Um, so you know. Um, my first piece of advice, RTFM. Um, you don't have to make it up. You don't have to copy what your parents did or do the opposite of what your parents did. A wonderful researcher at UW has been studying this for decades. She's done great research on it. She's written books. I would highly recommend that book. Like, there is good science here. Really good science. And what's great about this is my wife and I are on, literally on the same page. Like, there's no disagreements about this is how I was raised versus you. Like, we have a basis to go to, and it's really, really good. And so a lot of the things I've learned come from this. Um, so what do consequences and vaccines have in common? I would love to tell you, but my wife said I get beat up in Seattle. But consequences are super, super important for kids. Um, like, reality is full of consequences, and so we need to teach them that. Part of that is, like, not reacting to negative stimulus. Your children will try to get your attention in bad ways. You're better off ignoring. Don't laugh, and maybe, and they're not breaking anything, don't chastise them. Just ignore them. Give them no signal. They'll learn, that, they'll learn that's not a way to get attention. More importantly, do not let them negotiate. They will scream. They will yell. They might embarrass you. Do not give in. They will learn that it's a way to get their way. Um, and part of how to make that successful is slowing down. What you realize is you can't rush a three-year-old. You can't rush a toddler. And a lot of times when they're trying to do those things to get your attention, maybe they just need some attention and you need to slow down and think about that. A great example happened. I was doing a project outside. I asked him if he wanted to help. He said yes. And he kept like digging through my tools and playing with all the sharp things. And I realized I didn't have anything for him to do because I was working on what I was doing. So I got out a piece of wood and I taught him how to hammer. And of course he wanted me to hold the nail, which I thought was perfect. And I was like, no, 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 no. Good lessons to learn. And sometimes you just need to be creative. Um, she approved this picture, by the way. Like, she didn't want to wear diapers. We, she made up this wonderful game about, like, put a diaper on your head, and it became a joke, and he put on his diapers. So sometimes you just need to be really creative. And so some combination of lots of patience and time and creativity, you get this wonderful synergy where things get really good. You laugh a lot together with your partner, and it makes things much, much easier. And even beyond that, um, there's a, kind of a few other things. Um, pick your battles. Like, if the kid's not eating with a fork and not eating the vegetables, pick one. Like... Like, don't make it about, like, you will eat vegetables with a fork. Like, fingers are fine. Like, get the broccoli down first. We'll work on the fork later. And don't be afraid about getting help. Get babysitters. There are these great places called Playdate. They have, like, bumper, like, places for kids to play, and they serve alcohol. <laughs> Seriously. I, I had no idea this existed. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. Um, I dropped off the little guy at school today. And uh, he held my leg, and he says, I'll miss you. And it was just the most sweet thing. And he grabbed my badge, and he looked at it. And he's like, I, I remember your face in my head. And I just almost collapsed. Um, it is the most meaningful thing I do in my life. It's really wonderful. Um, the short version, this is the organization that we have been working on for Foster Adopt. Um, there's so many kids in this world, in this city, in the state, that need our love and help, and you can help them. Um, please look deeper if you're at all curious. Thank you so much. John, that was excellent.
would you adopt me? I've had a rough time with these Ignite organizers. They're so mean to the MC. You have no idea. Okay. So our next talk in a non-juxtaposed sort of connectedness um, theme is about parenting. But it goes a little deeper. It's a little bit more serious talk. But I think you're going to be amazed and inspired, challenged, but amazed and inspired by this talk. The talk's title is called The Skin We're In. Please welcome Fess Nakvi to the stage. Fess. Mom, Dad, it hurts. It really, really hurts. Please make it stop. These are the words that no parent or caretaker wants to hear. And we've had to hear them since our daughter was born in 2012. And they have been the source of much frustration and anger and sadness and rage within us, and I'll tell you why. Skin is the largest organ in the human body. On an average human, it spans about 21 square feet in length and weighs about 9 pounds. It helps regulate body temperature. It's made up of collagen and keratin, and it's made up of three layers, the epidermis, dermis, and the hypodermis. It's the primary organ for making sure that everything inside your body is protected from outside diseases and infections. So, what happens when things go wrong? Well, there's 583 possible scenarios. Why 583? Because the National Institute of Health lists 583 possible infections, diseases, or disorders one can have on their skin. And this brings me to my story. In 2012, in an unexpected surprise, me and my wife found out that we were expecting. We were really happy. We were going to try at the end of the year, but it happened earlier, and we were overjoyed. Everything went great. Her pregnancy, the delivery and labor process, and her daughter was beautiful. But, there's always a but. A few hours after she was born, we noticed that the skin on her feet was really red, and the redness was not subsiding. And a little bit later, she was blistering head to toe. A physician was called, and she diagnosed her with EB, or epidermolysis bullosa, which skin biopsies later confirmed. The last three and a half years have been filled with battles, filled with diluted bleach and vinegar baths, with, of wound care, of skin care, of trying not to hurt our kid while we're doing skin care. Fear, anger, rage, not knowing what to do next. You see, epidermolysis bullosa is a, is a rare genetic skin disorder that causes your skin to blister, shred, or tear. And on some, this touch will make their skin fall off. And to this day, our three-and-a-half-year-old blisters head to toe inside her mouth, on her genitals. And for some, it causes strictures and closures of the esophageal tract, and uh, for that, they need a G-tube for feeding. You see, it's so rare that it's 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 50,000 rare. And for some, it can be terminal or fatal. 
And there is no cure. Yeah, you heard me right. There is no cure. There's only long-term pain management and wound care, which we continue to do and other parents and caretakers continue to do. So, aside from having anger management issues and having possible PTSD issues and being mentally and physically exhausted and going to a father's group for special needs kids once a month, I learned a few things along the way. I learned and I continue to learn to learn uncondi- uh, to love unconditionally. I'm trying to learn patience. I'm trying not to judge others on their anger and sadness and not telling them how to smile because why? Everyone carries a burden. Who am I to judge them on what they're feeling? You see, there's a lack of empathy and sympathy in this world and there's getting to be a lack of tolerance, and I really don't want to be any, don't want to spread any more of that. I don't, I'd rather have us, you know, work towards a better world and just make it better for, not just for our kids, for generations after. I want to be comfortable in my skin, you see, and I hope one day with the help of research, my daughter and others like her can be comfortable in hers, in theirs. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a brave thing to get on any stage in any situation and to talk about something like that. Is uh, I'm in awe and impressed by that. Another round of applause for Fest, please. Thank you. Take a second for yourself. Because life is hard, and part of Ignite, we realize it shouldn't all be fun and games. Part of why we invite people who have serious things to talk about. It's not the first time we've heard serious personal stories up here. We think that's a healthy thing because it's a big part of life. My job now is to segue to the next talk, which is going to be a happier talk because it's the last talk before intermission. Okay, our last talk before intermission. So let me tell you how intermission works. After the next talk, we'll break for about 25 minutes. The bar is open. Bathrooms are open. Chat with each other. If you're stuck in line at the bathrooms or at the bar, you don't know what to do. You've seen eight interesting talks. Some you hated, some you liked. Anyone that you meet, you can go, hey, which talk did you like the most? Which talk did you hate the most? Easy way to make a connection. And then we're at the next Ignite. There's now someone else that you know. We're trying to build community about the ideas and the stories that you've heard so far tonight. So please keep that in mind. But next up is a talk about the future of our species in an entertaining way involving mobile apps. <laughs> so next up, the title of the talk is That's What He Said. Please welcome Katie Chase to the stage. Yeah. So a couple years ago, I found myself back on the dating scene, not according to plan, and I joined Tinder. Yes, I just said that. And uh, I basically wanted to see if I could get a date. Now, it turns out that if you're a woman and you're alive on Tinder, (laughs) you can get a date. But I didn't know that yet because I was immediately post-divorce, and you don't know a lot of things immediately post-divorce. So I didn't have a lot of filters. I went out on an exceedingly boring date that ended with a long pause with a fellow who said, you are so interesting. I could talk to you for hours. And I thought... Wow, this is harder than it looks. 
So on the way home, I called Tinder date number two. I was walking home. Hey, you know, here we are. Right out of the bat, he asked, what do you want? I'm like, love, life, kids, everything? What do you want? And he's like, I am not the man for you. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I am not ready for this. So I went back to my roots and started writing music. And the first song went, I want you, baby, and you know that you know what I mean. I want you, baby, and I know that you know what I need. I've been watching from the sidelines as you slowly draw me in. I've been watching you and the way you look at me. Ah, this ends in disaster. You know this, right? <laughs> there was no such love affair happening. Okay, so let's back up like one year and find out about the real train wreck that was happening. So 2013 is the year that everything fell apart. Everything that could fall apart, fall, like, did it. Highlights, audit, lawsuit, sold the house under duress. My husband filed for divorce. I, wait, I filed for divorce. And uh, I found myself moved to the Midwest for a temporary position at my alma mater, Oberlin. And I found myself in the room with a doctor who said the words precancer and hysterectomy, and she was talking about me. So she got fired, and I found a doctor on the West Coast who totally restored my health, um, but the moment of that terror lingers. So back on the dating scene, like, we're in a hurry. So when you tell someone up front that you want to start a family and you actually get a third date, it's really exciting. So I brought someone to Ignite a while ago, like, this is exciting. Hey, psst, this is my friend Steven up there. This is going to be awesome. He leans over and he says, hey, let's get out of here. Do you like Ethiopian food? And I'm like, dude, he's talking about parasitic wasps. <laughs> this is not good. Okay, so we walk out at the end, and he's like, wow, your friends are so smart. And like, I don't have a lot to offer, but I've got a big dick. <laughs> and I did what you just did. I laughed. <laughs> And it was an irreparable moment. <laughs> so I thought, okay, meet people in context. I met this guy at Startup Weekend. God, like, this is part of my world. Okay. So we go out to lunch, and he says, hey, I was talking to my mom on the way up here. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And he says, and I told her that I left my sniper rifle at home. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't even know that Startup Weekenders knew what guns were. And I come from this community. So I thought, how is this happening? Where is this coming from? Okay, so, you know, tell the truth up front. As my mom told me a long time ago, believe people when they tell you about themselves. And, um, you know, don't be afraid to tell your story early. Fail fast, right? Um, <laughs> like, we're in a hurry. Okay, so uh, I would also say that when, in my case, in upper 30s, talking to men about, like, hey, dating, want to start a family, be ready for the fact that talking to them might be like the tide. One minute, it's totally placid, and the next minute, it's running away from you. <laughs> like, as fast as possible. So, for myself, also considering the possibility that that feels crazy. Am I trying to do something crazy? Why is there so much friction? But the story that I'm trying to tell is found between the lines. I wrote it there some time ago and left for you to find. I don't know where we're going, but I know we've got to start. 
And if you would listen, darling, I would give you half my heart. So, in three days, I'm going to go walk across Spain on the Camino. I don't think the most important... I don't think the most important question is, what do you want? I think the most important question is, what are you willing to do about it? So I'm going to go think about that, and I hope you will too, and I hope I get to tell you about it at some future Ignite talk. Thanks. Great job. That was good. That was good. Okay, we want to get underway. A lot of great stuff. If you like the first half, this is going to be equally good or better. That's my promise to you. I know that's really not much of a promise. It'll be better or equally good. First up for you, one of my favorite title, talk title submissions, possibly of all time. I'm not going to introduce it with a segue. I don't need one. The title is, What If Life Were Like Stock Photography? Please welcome Jesse Baker to the stage. Somebody once told me that every great presentation begins with a hot start. Now, if this was too cheesy for you, you're going to be in for a long five minutes because this presentation is completely cheesy, but please stick with me because we'll get to something deeper. So my name is Jesse Baker, and I am a strategist for a brand design agency called Hornell Anderson, and I see a lot of stock photography. Some good, some bad. Uh, <laughs> um, and one day I asked myself, what if life were really like stock photography? So if you work in the industry or if you're a photographer who actually supplies really great stock photos, this talk is not for you. I'm talking about extremes here. And so just keep doing what you're doing, all right? And this is probably what you think about when you think of really bad stock photography. <laughs> Epic office triumphs. Conquering the impossible and really awkward photos with food. And like, if you're like me, you asked, why? Why did this happen? And the answer is because of how stock photos are produced. They are created in anticipation of demand, meaning a photographer has to guess what somebody's going to want. So in any good argument, you acknowledge the opposition. So I will say stock photos have come a very long way. And there are some very legitimate reasons for why you want to use them. They're cheaper, they're easier, and they are faster. But when stock goes wrong, stock goes wrong. Uh, the first is that a lot of times it's very unrealistic, like woman eating salad. I've had a lot of great salads, like chef, Thai chicken. I've never been this happy, and neither of you, I bet. <laughs> the next problem is that anybody can use the same photo you are, even your closest competitor. Made, made famous by the Everywhere Girl in 2004, she, at the same time, was in ads for both Dell and Gateway for personal computers. <laughs> and the next reason is that stock photos often don't provide a lot of context. I have no idea what's going on here. And what it does, because I want to know what this girl's thinking, is I have to jump to conclusions. And this is what the talk is really about. <laughs> at its worst, stock photos really perpetuate stereotypes. And that's terrible. I'm, if I look at this image, I'm supposed to avoid every woman while they're PMSing. I get it, but that's not what I believe, just to be clear. And unfortunately, women seem to get the brunt of stock photography stereotypes. If you're a businesswoman, if you're a feminist, if you're a working mom, 
you can conclude that you either need to be promiscuous or you hate your life, and that is wrong. But don't worry, every group is, is you know, conflicted by this. You have happy, smart Asians, overly aggressive black men, even Santa and dogs are, you know, suffer from this. And you might be thinking, white males probably got it good, right? Nope. <laughs> and this proves that no matter who you are, there's a stock photo out there that says something to you about society, whether you like it or not. So let's do an experiment. I'm going to list off to you three traits, and you just quickly think about what comes to mind. Millennial, multiracial, Idahoan. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to be a joke. What, what comes to mind? Hap, happy multiracial family? <laughs> a hipster Skyping on his cell phone? A potato farmer? Hopefully you didn't think of a white supremacist. <laughs> but what you probably didn't think of is me. And that's the point. Stock photos can never tell you the unique characteristics that make me who I am. And stock photos can never tell you that when I was younger, I really overused the thumbs up. <laughs> so what if life were like stock photography? Well, I think life would be pretty predictable. And I think we would lose all appreciation for those set of unique characteristics that make us who we are. We'd lose appreciation for the unique characteristics that make the world beautiful. Now, again, if, if you're in this industry, you're creating stock photos, I apologize. This is not about stock photography. This is actually about a conversation about stereotypes and how we're all affected by them. And if we're honest, we know that we all stereotype every day, too. But it's not necessarily our fault. Stereotypes are shortcuts that our brain makes in order for us to process information more quickly. It's hard ingrained into who we are. And stock photography and other forms of media just reinforce that over time. So this is what I say to you. Challenge stereotypes. Much like Amanda's talk earlier, that was great. Uh, be open to special and embrace all of our unique characteristics that make us who we are. Thank you. Great job. Thumbs up, thumbs up, right? Thumbs up, thumbs up. You got thumbs up from everybody. There we go. Very good. Okay, next up is a, a, little bit, uh, a little bit more of a highbrow challenge. How many of you studied Latin in high school? How many of you do drugs as a result of the Latin? Okay. Here's a different take on linguistics and the history of language and why a certain kind of language is really important. So our next talk is slang is the mother of invention. Please welcome Remy Purnell to the stage. Hi. How are you? Good, good. Um, I'm Remy Purnell. I'm going to be defending slang today. If you were to ask any passerby on the street what their opinion on the sentence Johnny got turned at the club with that ratchet girl, but her eyebrows were on fleek. They'd probably denounce it as millennial teen talk, right? But slang and the criticism of slang is not new. In 1870, Oliver Wendham Holmes claimed that slang was both the cause and the sign of mental atrophy. And even in the heyday of Latin, which is like the so-called linguistic golden age, right? Cicero claimed that you speak was making Latin go to hell, basically. Um, but if these predictions were true, that slang was deteriorating our language, then I should just be speaking to you at grunts at this point. But I'm not. 
So slang actually benefits our language because it's the language of everyday life. And I argue that slang actually benefits the way we communicate. And the first reason for that is that slang builds community. So essentially, slang is a way for us to build group dynamics and build interpersonal relationships. So let's take the word dude, right? So dude was once a way for us to criticize very fashion-forward, look-obsessed men. It was the way of saying hipster back in the 1800s. But today, dude is a way for us, for men, to express affection for you another. So if you say, hey, dude, that's a way that Daniel Lambert says that we can show heterosexual straight chillness while still saying, hey, man, you're my friend. Also, there's a secondary way. So slang helps build inner group community. So when, if you and your friends make a word for something, that's good. Because if you and your friends share an experience together, you want to make a word out of it, right? So in Seattle, we say, the mountain is out today. Because we all want to share the experience of Mount Rainier out in the world, right? And in the military, actually, in World War II, um, and in military in general, uh, slang tends to be about complaints or really terrible military food. Uh, for example, one particular uh, slang is Dear John. And if you got a girlfriend that's breaking up with you via letter that she's leaving you for your neighbor, you got a Dear John. The secondary reason why slang um, helps us communicate is because it allows people to discuss the vulgar. So hedonism is a part of our everyday lives, and we all want to discuss sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but the explicit words to talk about those things are just too taboo for everyday lives. Um, so, for example, although you might get turned at the club today, if you go to a 1920s speakeasy prohibition, you'd be zozzled at the speakeasy. Um, and also, if you were to get, go to the pub in 1616, you'd be glugified. And if you were to buy weed on the streets of Seattle in 1930, you would be looking for muggles or for jives in the day. Also, if you're banging Elizabeth today, if you're banging the same girl in 1650, you'd be joining good billets or fadoodling with her. In 1500, you would be playing her the nug-nug. So we're really squeamish people, and slang allows us to speak about the squeamish, because that's what's important. What happens behind closed doors with the lights off, that's what we like to talk about. And slang helps us circumvent this kind of nervous things, this kind of defense mechanism, I guess. Uh, the third reason why slang enhances communication is because slang promotes creativity. Um, <laughs> gotta finish my talk. Um, S.I. Hayakawa once called slang the poetry of life. So if you are to say uh, Johnny got turned to the club with that ratchet girl, it's really way more enthusiastic and vivacious than saying Johnny imbibed one standard alcoholic drink last night at the unicorn. Because one doesn't want to sound like they're constantly bullshitting an academic essay with a bunch of academic jargon all the time because that would be boring. And if we were, were referencing the Purdue Owl Guide every time we wanted to make a sentence, it would be boring. And if you're really serious about communicating an idea, and communicating an idea effectively, it is far more important to be interesting and relevant than dogmatic, right? So although you may not agree with slang in every context, because like if you're in a talk with your boss, for example, or in a student-parent-teacher conference, it's probably not okay to say word every moment, right? But you have to respect its place in the language because it does help us communicate, and it really does satisfy our deep needs for commodity, comfort, and creativity. If we hold on to a foolish nostalgia of what linguist claim is standard English, we really miss seeing the beauty of a language in change, in democratic, and in flux. Thank you.
That was good. Fadoodle. I learned something tonight. My wife's going to hear that word before we go to bed. If she's on the live stream, you did, I, I'm joking, but not joking. Okay. How many of you would like to write a book? How many of you have a month? Come on. You, are you dead? You have a month. All right. So this next talk is for you. Title of the talk is How to Write a Novel in a Month and Your Guide to Getting an Answer to This Question, Erica McGilvery. Please welcome Erica to the stage. Someday I'm going to write a novel. So when Scott asked you that question, how many of you wanted to do this? How many of you wanted to do that but you haven't yet? Raise your hands. Raise your hands again. Yes, lots of us. So I was saying that I wanted to write a novel since I was about five years old. And one of my biggest advocates, my grandfather, actually passed away in April of 2015 without ever holding my novel in his hands. So in November, I buckled down and I joined National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo. And (laughs) along with Thousands of other people over 16 years, I pledged to write 50,000 words in a month, producing a rough draft of a novel by December 1st. For writers, there's a ton of things out there to help you with your writing, of course. There's lots of advice about how to actually use your October to do things like make an outline and build character sketches because you will forget your character's last name. You also want to create writing rituals and test out software. Scrivener rocks. And in those dark hours of November, you want to be part of a community, either online or in person. But know that signing up for NaNoWriMo's official community doesn't guarantee that you'll actually finish your novel. Life gets in the way, for a lot of us, of any writing. November doesn't stop. It keeps going. And the truth about writing is that you must actually sit your butt in a seat. You must take out your computer and be in front of that computer. You must put your hands on your keyboard. You must actively type in a word processing program, not in your Twitter So for me, I had four major challenges in November that had absolutely nothing to do with my writing, but they could have stopped it. So here's here's what happened. The first challenge is that I am the primary cook in my family, and I love a clean house, like a terrible gendered statistic. So in October, before the month, I cooked and froze burritos, chili, a terrible quinoa dish. I also talked to my partner early and often about how he, too, was making a commitment to NaNoWriMo. (laughs) My second challenge was that I gave a presentation at a burlesque convention about social media. And I had meant to finish my slide deck in October. This did not happen. 
This meant I had to be even more ruthless with my time. I turned down social engagements, got behind on my favorite television shows. And when I actually went to the conference, I gave my presentation, but I only took a handful of classes. My third challenge was, like many of you, I work full time. And my team was hosting an event in Boston mid-November where I was the MC. I got behind on my writing, and I fretted about it a lot, worried I wasn't going to finish by December 1st. I took a crazy early flight back from Boston, and I shoddily tried to sleep on an airplane. So then I had my fourth and final November challenge. I hosted Thanksgiving. Every Thanksgiving, I make a big vegetarian Indian meal, and I make homemade naan, and I cook pumpkin pie. This year, I convinced my octogenarian grandmother to come and visit me. Everything was going great. Grandma would go to bed, I'd do my writing, until Grandma got a serious but non-life-threatening illness. Suddenly, my writing was on pause. I was cooking, I was hosting Thanksgiving, and I was making grandma call her doctor and get medicine. But you know, everything turned out fine. Everyone loved Thanksgiving. So for those of you who wonder, can I write a novel in a month? Can I write 50,000 words? You can. I did. I wrote a novel. And for those non-writers out there, please don't ask me what my novel's about or when it's going to be published. I have absolutely no idea how to do that. Maybe I'll talk about that at another Ignite. Okay. Next up is a talk about the technology of something we take for granted, which is where we live. You're going to hear a talk about the world's smartest house by Ian Mercer. Please welcome Ian. Thank you. This may be the world's smartest house. It's a personal project that I've been working on for more than 10 years in my spare time, trying to figure out what should a smart house do, how do I code it to do that, and most importantly, the human factors involved. What do people actually like having in their smart house? And which features are just such a bad idea that they get ripped out? And there's plenty of features I've ripped out along the way. For me, a smart house is first and foremost autonomous. It does the right thing at the right time without you having to tell it. You don't need to tell your house that you're home, duh. It can sense that. And it just does the right thing, adjusting the thermostat, turning lights on and off as you walk around. Second thing... A smart house should not be annoying. Our house will make subtle noises to tell you that a car's coming down the drive. It makes a tweeting bird sound that a guest doesn't even recognize as being from inside the house. We know it's a car. The dogs know it's the car. But it's subtle. It's not in your face and annoying. And in fact, anybody who says that the vision of the future for the home is LCD screens in every room, <coughs> Microsoft, um, I think... <laughs> I think that's wrong. The house is a sanctuary. It's a place you go to escape technology. My house looks like a normal house. 
But the house is aware. It knows which rooms are occupied. It knows where people are in the house, how long ago they were there. And it uses that information you know, to turn lights off and to save energy. There is no user interface there because the house is the interface. The house has over 200 sensors in it of all different kinds. By the time you've come through the front door, you've already passed through five sensors. My favorite sensor are these. This is a strain gauge under the floor that measures the deflection in the beam as you walk around. It's invisible, it's reliable, and the pets don't trip it up either. The house also tracks devices coming and going. We've all got a little personal transponder on us that the house uses to know you're there. You know, it pretends to be Google, Starbucks, and CSAT-free Wi-Fi. So if you walk in my house with your Wi-Fi on, it's grabbed your MAC address, and next time you come, I'll know it's you again. <laughs> For the Pacific Northwest, this is my favorite sensor, actually. There is no point turning the lights on and off based on the time of day. <laughs> you walk in my kitchen at midday, some days the lights come on because there's less sunlight coming in. The house collects vast quantities of data. I have over 100 gigabytes of sensor data going back several years. And this data is used in the decision-making process. Should this light be on? Is this room more occupied than it was the same time last year or the same time last week? The decision to turn a light on or off or how bright it should be on is a really complicated decision. It's not an if-this-then-that kind of scenario. The house takes into account many different factors in deciding whether or not to put that light on. When you walk into the bathroom late at night, you want the light to come on really dim, not full bright in your face. If you've just turned the light off, you don't want to end up with a fight with the computer trying to turn it back on again. So it needs to take account of that. To help it understand the topology of your house, the house has a graph model with nodes and edges behind the scenes where it knows every sensor, which room it's in, which rooms are adjacent to which other rooms. And that helps it do things like not playing different music in two rooms that are audibly connected. You don't want different songs well, going over the top of each other. Now, the house does still have manual controls. It looks like a normal house. The babysitter can operate the controls. The guests can work the house. But it lets you, gives you the illusion of control. <laughs> over the next hour, it just takes over. The kids set the thermostat to 95. Within an hour, it's back to where it should be. I also, along the way, just built a natural language interface uh, so that you can chat to the house and it chats to you. You know, you can ask it who called, you can tell it what music to play in which rooms. Um, this was just a little side project. It took about a year, I think, to get that going. <laughs> <laughs> and it even integrates with my task list. I can chat to it and tell it stuff to put on my task list. And the house integrates with lots of other things outside the house, and there's one single interface for that. Finally, if you're going to automate your own home, start in the kitchen. Don't start in the bedroom. There is no feature that anybody hates more than being woken up in the night with the lights on and music playing loudly. Don't do it. <laughs> this is my experiment. It's ongoing. Who knows when I'll finish. Um, go visit uh, my blog. You can find it by Googling World's Smartest House, of course. Um, I might be number one. Sometimes I'm number two. Help me get back to number one. Thank you. Good night. I really, really do want to be invited over to his house. It sounds a little bit like the world's smartest house and a little bit like the world's scariest house. 
And some smart people, like geniuses, are really scary. So it's not a surprise that they are tied together. How many of you like food? Okay. This is an important talk about our food culture. We're very proud of food here in Seattle. This talk is about, the title of the talk is, Our Culinary Renaissance is Dying. So please welcome Jonathan Merrill to the stage to explain why. Round of applause for Jonathan. My name is Jonathan Merrill, and I've spent over half my life working in kitchens. I started as a young teenager dishwashing, and I've worked up and managed my own kitchens as a chef. But what I'm here to talk about is that our culinary renaissance is dying. In the 1960s, chefs and various figures began immigrating back in the United States and influencing our culture. These household names began to gain traction, eventually to the point where later in the late 1980s, a culinary renaissance began to take over, known as Food Network. Um, I was raised up on this and eventually came across a book called Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Like many young cooks, I began to drink the Kool-Aid and say, I want to do this. As the internet age took off, we began to connect with chefs across the world and understand the type of food that was happening in different pockets that we may never experience but feel connected on the daily basis with them. But what this bred was a terrible culture of people thinking that they're all food critics by taking a picture of every meal that they ate. <laughs> I'm guilty of doing this occasionally as well, um, but what I'm more guilty of is I found myself being young, talented, and running a kitchen of myself, angry as hell at the world. And I started to question, why is this? I've found success in my career, and yet for some reason, I don't feel like I'm truly connected to food the way I thought I was. And so I decided to sell everything I owned, except for a backpack and my chef knives, and spend the last three and a half years knocking on the doors of world's leading kitchens, asking them if I could come in and cook. What I found was standing next to a donkey stable in rural Peru, looking at these stars, I had this epiphany of maybe as a culinary industry we could do something more for the young cooks, because someday I'm going to be too old to want to cook, and I'm going to die off, and who's going to give a shit? Cooks were harnessing all the wrong traditions. This macho, angry, vicious culture of you must break your soul down and be belittled to work harder for longer hours was driving me and my peers every night to go out, induce ourselves with alcohol, drugs, and what I saw was not only just depression and financial ruin as people burnt out, but suicide and death. It's something that's very close and passionate to me, so I'm politely here to say, fuck all that. <laughs> we, as a culture, can do more, and chefs are starting to recognize this. Rene Renzepi runs one of the most important and influential kitchens of the past decade in Denmark, Copenhagen. Copenhagen, Denmark, that one. Uh, it's called Noma, and he shut it down for the last year. Shut it down, moved his cooks abroad, and they're rebuilding it from the ground up, conducive to a creative environment. Chefs across the nation are starting to write articles and come out in interviews to recognize we can do more to help those that are coming up behind us to become even better than ourselves. That's a true recognition of our strengths as a chef. The industry is not going to change. It's always going to be hard. It's going to be tireless hours. And we're there because we love to cook. But the ways and means that we go about it can only go so far as chefs. So I'm here to 
implore all of you to recognize that cooking is what makes us human. It's the one distinct characteristic that defines us from all other species on the planet. No one else cooks. And so if you enjoy eating food, hopefully everyone in this room does, you'll understand the importance of recognizing that love is important when it comes to cooking. Following me and my journey is completely irrelevant to this conversation. You can. I have many other continents to still cross. 30 countries in three years sounds impressive, but I'm only scratching the surface. What I want to try and encourage all of you is in your own daily activity as consumers to recognize the work that as chefs we put in simply because we love to cook. There's a connection from the earth to our plates that is so overlooked sometimes, and we're so focused on the bottom line of how much we're spending, yet ingredients have become trendy, and we see farmer markets pulling up in every neighborhood next to one another, that we do have an influence as chefs on modern-day society. You see it in your Facebook feeds. So I hope that next time you're going out, you look to find out what chefs are really doing the most for the camaraderie of their kitchen to help build young cooks up. Because at some day, the kids in elementary school are going to be cooking your food for you. And I hope you understand the importance that our culture is having a renaissance, and I'd hate to see it die. Thank you. Okay. When you, when you have a great meal, we forget how many people work really hard behind the scenes to make that possible. So there is actually a very nice, convenient, safe segue talking about chefs. Chefs love ingredient, good ingredients. It's what, the easiest way to be a better cook is just get better ingredients. The next talk is about an important ingredient for all of us who like sushi and, and fish. Next talk is titled, Bluefin Tuna are Badass Fish. Please welcome Mark Vandekamp up on stage. Bluefin Tuna are awesome. And I don't mean sort of cool, kind of neat awesome. I mean inspiring feelings of awe and great admiration awesome. When I first learned about bluefin tuna, I didn't really think this. I thought they were sort of boring fish, kind of big-headed, like you can draw them with three curved lines. <laughs> but then I started to learn about bluefin tuna, and I changed my mind. And I'm going to tell you some of the things I learned. First of all, bluefin are huge animals. An average adult bluefin is, is longer than I am tall and weighs more than the biggest sumo wrestler. A really big bluefin is more than 10 feet long and weighs as much as a smart car. And these fish are athletes. A bluefin literally never stops swimming. It'll suffocate if it swims slower than a walking speed for you and me. And it usually swims at about 8 miles an hour. And that's twice as fast as Michael Phelps can swim a 100-meter butterfly. And they're not just swimming around in circles. These fish migrate back and forth across entire oceans. In one scientific study, there was a tagged tuna named Terry who swam 25,000 miles in less than two years, going back and forth across the Pacific. So that's what they do when they're just cruising along. But when they're in attack mode, a tuna turns into an aquatic missile. Its dorsal fin retracts into a groove on its back, and its pectoral fins fold back into grooves on its side, making it perfectly streamlined. In this configuration, 
a bluefin can burst forward at over 40 miles an hour. That's twice as fast as a bottlenose dolphin at top speed. So these fish do extraordinary things. But what's the most extraordinary thing about them is how they do those things. You see, a bluefin tuna is a warm-blooded fish. Now, when I first heard that, I went, wait, what? Mammals are warm-blooded, birds are warm-blooded, fish are cold-blooded. And there's a reason why the vast majority of fish are cold-blooded, and that's because fish breathe water. Their blood absorbs oxygen from the water rushing past their gills. The problem with that system is that water absorbs heat 24 times better than air does. So in a standard cold-blooded fish, their muscles produce heat, just like yours or mine, but the heat goes into the blood, the blood goes to the gills, the gills serve as radiators, they transfer that heat, and the fish's body temperature is the same as the water around them. Well, what about bluefin tuna? They use a lot of oxygen, and in fact, they have over, well, up to 30 times the gill area of other fish. Well, bluefin have evolved a heat exchange system called a rete mirabile, which means miraculous net in Latin. And this is how it works. In a bluefin, the cold, oxygenated blood leaving the gills doesn't run down the center of the fish through its core. Instead, the arteries split and run on each side just underneath the skin, far away from the warm core of the fish. Then, where the artery branches off and each branch goes toward the center of the fish, that blood vessel runs right next to the vein that's bringing the warm, deoxygenated blood outward. That network of blood vessels serves as a countercurrent heat exchanger, and the tuna's nervous system can regulate it to maintain a near-constant body temperature. It's up to 99% efficient. And the bottom line of that is that a tuna swimming in 50-degree water off the coast of California can have a core body temperature of 85 degrees. Now, being warm-blooded is a huge deal if you're a predatory fish. Bluefin tuna hunt particularly effectively in the areas where cold, nutrient-rich water wells up from the bottom of the ocean, sparking an explosion of life all the way up the food chain. In those cold waters, a bluefin has an advantage over its prey because its warm eyes see better, its warm muscles produce more power, and its warm nervous system is more coordinated. Being warm-blooded is what makes bluefin tuna badass fish. So I've reached the point in virtually every nature talk where I tell you that humans are terrible and we're killing off the animals and they're threatened or endangered. And yeah, um, humans can be pretty terrible. And we are um, overfishing the bluefin tuna, particularly in the Atlantic. But I don't want to leave you with that. I don't want to leave you feeling sad or guilty about bluefin tuna. What I hope instead is that by telling you about these highly evolved animals, that I've shared some of the sense of wonder that I felt as I learned about them, and that you'll agree with me that bluefin tuna are truly awesome. Good job. Thank you. The thing I want to know is like, what fish is out there that's just terrible, that there's nothing good about it so we can feel good about eating it? Like, like what's the trump of fish? You know, that we can get like, like, yeah, let's get rid of it, get eliminated. And that's, that's maybe a future Ignite talk. There may not be a fish for this. I don't know. Maybe it's tofu. Tofu is the trump of... Anyway, bad segue. Let me move on. So there's a lot of buzz. I am a middle-aged person. 
I was born in 1972. I am older than many of you. My eyesight's not very good, so I actually can't really tell. But there's a lot of consternation about the next generation. I was born in Generation X, and there's a Y and a Z, and now there's millennials. There's a lot of talk about this. So I've, I feel very honored. We're going to have a millennial talk about millennials. The title of her talk is Why the World Hates Millennials. Please welcome Cameron Barnes to the stage. Hit it, Larry. Have you ever forgotten to put an important date in your iPhone and realized you were going to take the L? Have you ever had one of those days where your outfit was on fleek, but then you forgot to take a picture? And have you ever been sorry, not sorry while talking to a friend? Or have you ever gotten to be embarrassed because your friend sent an ugly Snapchat of you to your bae? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, you're probably a millennial. But if you thought I was speaking gibberish, you're definitely not. And if you're a millennial, I hate to break it to you, but the world hates you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Cameron Barnes, and I was born on March 19th, 1998. So this means that I, too, am a millennial. So why, you might ask, would I write a speech about how awful my own generation is? Well, the answer is quite simple, because somebody has to say it. Now keep in mind that these aren't the ravings of a scorned girl shunned by her peers. I like my classmates. But these are observations. I was the Jane Goodall of my high school, and my classmates were the chimps. <laughs> Observation one focuses a lot on community service, or more specifically, the lack of passion while doing said community service. So if you were a senior that, or, or were a senior that had to do civics hours and volunteered at an elementary school dance or carnival, I'm going to guess you spent about half your time figuring out how to do the least amount of work possible, and the other half of your time figuring out how much free food you could snag before they realized it was you. <laughs> See, the problem with this is that you, there's no passion involved unless you're really into being lazy. And we do better, more considerate work when it's a cause we care about. So if we're not putting in, if we're putting in 50% of the effort rather than 110%, how do you think that looks to adults? I'll tell you, we look like bums. We do better work when we care about it. So whether it's Little League or working with animals, we need to find things that we actually give a damn about because then our work actually means something. We need to do it for the experience and not the hours. Observation two focuses on how millennials continue to do idiotic things. Exhibit A being how these six girls in Arizona decided to spell out the N-word on their shirts and put it on social media. I don't think I need to say anything more about that. It's also 2016 and people still litter. Just because our bedrooms are disgusting doesn't mean the world needs to be. The world is gross and we need to do our part to help clean it up. And if you can't walk 10 feet away to throw your McDonald's bag, then I sense a weight issue in your future. And our tough guy language that makes us feel cool actually makes us sound like a-holes. You don't need every other word out of your mouth to be the F-word or call someone a highly offensive name just to assert your dominance. Pee on them already so we can move on and sound like educated young adults. And your souped-up Honda Civic sounds like a weed whacker. Your racing is, <laughs> your racing is dangerous and you're going to hurt yourself or someone else around you and then you're really going to regret it. And millennials are under the impression that learning is not cool, and that's really just not the case. So when you don't do the homework and text the Dillinger kids for the 32nd time asking to copy the math homework, they're not going to feel bad for you when you get a D on the test. School may not be cool, but neither is living in a society full of people who choose a leader based off his selfie game and spray tans. 
So now that we know we're awful, what can we do? Well, luckily, my dear millennials, we are not too far gone. What we need to do is start helping each other. So millennials, if you see your friends being morons, let them know. Tell them to knock it off. If you see trash, pick it up. Be a good citizen. Now, if you're not a millennial, you have a slightly different task. You see, these scruffy, apathetic millennials that I've been in school with for the past 13 years, they're going to grow up to take care of you. So it is in your best interest to start showing them how to be better leaders. Because it is with your wisdom and your experiences that we can start learning how to take care of the world and start taking care of it well. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Millennials don't like being told what to do. So it's with this in mind that I beg you to lead by example. Show us how to take care of the world. Show us how to be good people and show us how to do the right thing and show us how to take this world and make it a better place so that we can take the job that you've done and do something even better with it. We can't change everybody's actions. We can only do our best to be leaders. So if you do a good thing, someone will see you and then the rest will come, like this guy dancing, if you haven't seen that video. All you can do is change your own actions. So, my dear millennials, it's great to be a kid, but at 17, you need to start preparing for adulthood. In conclusion, don't be an idiot. The world is watching, and they hate you. Great job. I think that was really good advice, not just for millennials, but for uh, people my age, too. Something to keep in mind. So we are really, we're on the, clo- we're on the home, really the home, st- the home part of the home stretch now. So whatever love you have left, don't give it to me. I'm going to announce the next talk. I want you to give it to her, okay? She's got a last, it's her last talk of the night. It's been a long night, lots of important stuff. She's going to give you a different, a different story to hear. I think it's going to stay with you for a, a long time. Title of the talk is Landing the Job I Never Wanted. Please welcome to Marion Rogers up to the stage is our last talk of the evening. Back in 1993, I was a gay black woman. And that identity fit me so well that I continue to choose to be a gay black woman today. I was recently asked, what does inclusion mean to me? And I said that this, to me, means that you have a vested interest in connecting with someone. Now, my best story about this, personally, was when I was introduced to Microsoft for the first time. I was actually at Stanford University studying electrical engineering as a graduate student. I needed a job. Word on campus was that Microsoft was the most difficult interview. To me, as an electrical engineer, there was no way I was going to land this. And by far, no one that came to visit or on the marketing material looked like me. It was perfect for a practice interview. (laughs) So I signed up, and I was one of the few selected to interview. It was not long before I realized that Microsoft did things differently. They had their interviews at a nearby hotel the Sheraton. And when I was escorted to 
the waiting area for the interviewers, there was food. <laughs> As a starving student, I was very excited to indulge. And then there was this conversation between this other young white guy about Microsoft. But it felt more like a conversation, getting to know each other. I was very surprised in the next couple of days when I got a call from Microsoft asking me to fly to Seattle to interview on the Redmond campus. After confirming and reconfirming that they had the right person, <laughs> I said, can I bring my girlfriend and explore the city after the interview? And they said yes. So we flew in on a Wednesday. Interview started at 9 a.m. on Thursday. My girlfriend and I had plans that afternoon, starting Thursday afternoon. And I'll be damned if we didn't interview for 12 and a half hours. I was pissed. <laughs> but there were a couple of things that I observed during the interview that really had an effect on me. One was I went through every single interview telling the person, I don't code. I thought this would shorten the interview. I thought, they won't ask me to go to the whiteboard. But they did something interesting. They asked me questions to see how do I approach a problem? How do I think it through? How do I break it down? How do I ask questions? They got to know me a little better. As I went through each interview, there were a couple of offices that I noticed the same, what looked to be the same radio. At the third radio, I had to ask the guy, I know you have an interview for me, but can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, that radio, it looks like the same one I saw in two other offices. Was there a sale? <laughs> and he said, no, no, we were gifted these when we shipped the last version of Excel. I said, wow, they really know how to treat their employees. I got a little more interested in Microsoft. <laughs> but he was observing that I was very observant. I was exhausted. I got back to the room, tried to explain to my girlfriend why I was so late. And as I was putting my onesie on to get in the bed, I'll be damned if the phone didn't ring. <laughs> it was Microsoft. Yes. Well, can you come back tomorrow and meet some more people? Absolutely. What time and when should I be there? I showed up, and that was great. I did meet some important people, leaders of the groups that were interested in me. But they introduced me to Trish Malines. At the time, she was a gay black woman. She still is today. And they introduced me to the racquetball coordinator. I never said I played racquetball during my interview but they read it on my resume. You see, Microsoft at that time really made a connection with me. They got to know me better, and I can say today that I've been there for more than 22 years because of that foundation. My message to you tonight is to invest in connecting with others, especially those that don't look or act or think like you. You don't know what surprise waits, but it's so important for the sustainability of our humanity, and our planet. Great job. Okay.
Last note, again, volunteer organization. If you had fun tonight, tell people about it. Post about it on Facebook. The talk you liked the most. The one you thought was the worst. That the MC guy had annoying red pants. Whatever you like to say, tell people about this event so we can keep doing it, make it better and better every time we do it. Next event's in October. Submissions are open right now. So if you have an idea, go up there, start reading about our advice. Thank you. Good night. Have a great long weekend. It's a pleasure. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Ignite Seattle 30 took place on May 26th at Town Hall Seattle. Tune in again soon.